John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1008.IS4713, certificate number 52246, Pulsar's Discovery of. This is a new thing we're trying out here on the Omnibus, uh, these... Yeah, I'm comma crazy now. These comma... I'll put a comma uh, in anything. I don't care. I'm going to go put a comma in my email address and my license plate. I don't care if it breaks the database somewhere. Omnibus, intransigent host of. <laughs> Omnibus, comma, annoyed <laughs> listeners of. On a scale of one to ten, John, how worried would you say you are about Beetlejuice? I don't want to say it two more times. Are you worried about him showing up? Could be. And and doing crazy Calypso numbers in here in the bunker with us? <laughs> I kind of want it. I kind of don't. I don't want that at all. I don't want anybody to reach into my eyes and pull them out and reach into my mouth and pull my mouth out. I mean, are you worried about Beetlejuice at the end of the movie trapped in that waiting room forever? No, or, or he you, you think that. he had it coming? Yeah. Are you? Do you, do you mean, am I worried about Betelgeuse? Yes. The, uh, the, are you worried the about distant the, star the red, formation? The red giant star. Uh, uh, I don't think think I need to be. Is this something that you can add to my anxiety file? A new thing that I should be worried about? Yes. Beetlejuice? Do you not, do you not have enough to be worried about in these challenging times? I've been sort of managing my anxiety a little bit in that every day there is at least an hour that goes by where I don't feel like I'm going to die from a massive, like, collapsing, uh, like, viral infection. Last night I think I had my first dream set in a post- covid world really? like like in the dream things were happening like that acknowledged quarantine and stuff because usually in your dreams you know you're in third grade or you're at your grandma's house or you're in a flying uh uh lighthouse or whatever uh but last night i had a dream that actually where i was actually thinking oh we can't go out to eat oh so, wow so yeah now we're all infected last night i had the weirdest dream let's add an hour to the show and uh, <laughs> and go into it i was with colin malloy whom i'm never with it's not that weird. And the television, the fictional character, I guess I was with Allison Janney. But who, she, was she C.J. Craig She was from in the, the role Wing? of C.J. Craig, but I knew her to be Allison Janney. That's weird that, and she, the, that she would stay in character. And the three of us were trying to get a, a reservation at a restaurant. So and, you're, you're having a pre-COVID dream about C.J. Craig. C.J. Craig and Colin Malloy, who's, I don't invite him into my dreams very often. I might invite him to lunch. Do you feel like maybe he was doing some kind of Inception-style assault on your dreams last night? He does that sometimes. Does Allison Janney ever join him? Yeah, she, she was the new element. <laughs> She's the wild card here. Colin slides into my DMs all the time, and I'm like, get out of my DMs. <laughs> but she's never done. Here's the reason to be worried about Beetlejuice. It's getting a little bit dimmer. Beetlejuice is. Yes. How far is Beetlejuice from us? Beetlejuice is over 600 light years away. So it's, Beetle- a, it's one of the brighter stars in Orion, the reddish one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If but not the brightest Orion. star in Orion. Uh, Rigel's brighter. Right. And that was, that was recently a New York Times crossword puzzle. Is that question. right? Making plans for Rigel? So Beetle, Beetlejuice, and we're, we've long settled on the pronunciation of that as Beetlejuice rather than Beetlejuice. I mean, it comes from the, uh, what does it come from? It probably comes from Arabic, right? I think people usually say Beetlejuice or Betelgeuse. Yeah. 
It looks I like, like Beetle Geese. <laughs> you, you want it to be the hard G. <laughs> so uh, Merriam-Webster's prefers Beetlejuice. Huh. They will allow Betelgeuse and... But not Betelgeuse. But, but they'll t- cock their head a little if you say Beetle or Betelgeuse. Mm, I'll L- cock my like head a little at like that, it's too. A, like it's a star. It's not a star anymore. It's a star of David. Hmm. Uh, so it's uh, it's X number of hundred light years away. Six hundred, yeah. We're 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 seeing. If you look up in the sky, you're seeing Betelgeuse from six hundred years ago. And so it's starting to dim as a result of space clouds, or it's starting to dim because something happened six hundred light years ago, or six hundred years ago that we're just starting to see evidence of. Well, we're definitely seeing whatever we're seeing is 600 years old. There's no way to get a, a, a quicker view of, of Betelgeuse than what we see in the sky. Well, I know, but couldn't the dimming be happening because something happened oh. 300 years ago in between? Closer us? to us. Uh, the Betelgeuse is getting close to the end of its life cycle oh. as a red giant. It's probably within. Cue sad violin music. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's fine. Beetlejuice is about 9 million years old. It's had a good life. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't feel so bad. And according to some estimates, it's probably about 100,000 years from uh, going out, and it'll go out with a bang. 100,000 years? That's not very long in star terms. No. Uh, it's it's long in terms of, um, you know, how long you try and get your kids out of the car, for example. Uh, right, right. But no, in in star terms, it's very close to the end of its life, and some you know when it dimmed appreciably last year, a lot of people thought, Elizabeth, this is it, this is a big one. Wait, it 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 dimmed appreciably within the space of a year. Yeah, at the beginning of the year, Betelgeuse was a certain uh, magnitude of brightness, and by the end of the year, it was n- measurably lower. To be fair, that happened to me in 2019 as well. Boy, it happens to me every six hours. Uh, and the question becomes, is something happening to the star, or is, as you say, something murking our view of Betelgeuse? Because we know that it's close to becoming going supernova, and we're very excited, because, you know, here on Earth, we have not seen a good supernova in centuries well, and centuries. Well, since that Oasis record. <laughs> yeah, that's the only kind of supernova I like, is a champagne supernova. If you are 600... Light years away. That's a big if, but I'll allow it. Let's say that we, let's say you and I were 600 light years away. From and, each other? And I. Now that's social distancing. And I exploded. Okay. Would that put you at risk if I were a red giant? No. Nothing bad will happen to us beyond a nice, pretty light show. It's not a thing where we're going to look up at this sky, we're going to see it dim, then the next day it's going to be a bright flash, yes. and then 10 days later we're going to get... Uh, covered with like whipped cream, <laughs> yeah, little bits space of, cream, <laughs> little bits of Beetlejuice and aliens. No, we're going to be fine. There's, okay, <laughs> Jor-El does not need to testify to the Kryptonian Council. Oh, I was really worried there for a second. Uh, and it turns out that the best data we have is that the surface temperature of Beetlejuice does not appear to have changed that much given the dimming, which probably means that Beetlejuice is just a little dusty. Beetlejuice needs Roomba-ing, like some, right. you know, for whatever reason, something between us and them is dimming its light. The giant, uh, the giant blue, uh, like Dr. Manhattan, Manhattan needs to take off his glasses and clean them on his, on the shirt tail and put them back on. The Legion of Superheroes needs to get the Sun Eater out of the way from between us and, uh, that's it. That's the better nerd reference. Sorry. Uh, but at some point... Probably in the next few tens of thousands of years, Betelgeuse is going to blow up. Okay. It'll go supernova. It's going to screw up Orion. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it'll make Orion look cooler. Betelgeuse is like the upper, like, I think it's the star that's usually pictured as one of Orion's arms, like the higher of the two arms above the belt. So Orion Pictures would have to change its logo if it hadn't gone bankrupt in the early 90s i do feel that orion could use a little bit of i've always felt like orion needed lower legs orion doesn't look much like a hunter like it doesn't really have a head orion should be what the hourglass the drapes yeah i i feel like the uh the kind of old-fashioned coffee maker cocktail shaker what are those coffee makers that you put on the stove that are they kind of have this orion shape 
It, it does not have a head, which is the main problem. Yeah, but also but no legs. All the constellations are bad. Like Ursa Major is supposed to have a long tail. And as Alaskans know, there's no kind of bear that has a long tail. Oh, the long-tailed bear. The, it's the a, Alaska it's, tailed it's bear. It's half bear, half kinkajou. Uh, when it becomes, when it goes Nova, that's a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure for Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Um You've said it now three times. Oh, no. Is it cumulative or do you have to say it back to back? I think it must be back to back. Otherwise, every uh, astronomer in the world would have a Beetlejuice in his house. Yes, unless they're just careful and only mention it. Maybe they start calling it that one star, like like uh, actors who can't see Macbeth. Maybe maybe they say Betelgeuse, and that doesn't affect it. That's why you've never seen him. You're you're mispronouncing it. You're going to see the German dubbed version of, of Beetlejuice. Uh, if Beetlejuice, uh, once it, uh, if once it goes Nova, what remains at its core is about two to three times the mass of our sun. Well, actually, if, let's, let's put it this way. If it's greater than three times the mass of our sun, Beetlejuice will become a black hole. Oh, that's exciting. So Orion will be holding a black hole. So Beetlejuice right now has, a, is much larger than our sun. It's huge. Like if, if Beetlejuice were our sun, I, I think like everything up until Jupiter or something would be like within the radius of the sun. But isn't it just a big gassy mass? Is it, it, it also has it in addition to being a, a big diffuse gas ball. It's also got a lot of, a lot more mass than our tiny little wimpy sun. Yes. And so how much gets ejected in the supernova will determine this. If it, on the other hand, it it's less than three solar masses it will probably between two and three solar masses. It will turn into a neutron star, which means it'll have the mass of our of a sun, but in a super small, dense form. Imagine compressing all the mass of our sun, or something bigger than our sun, in fact, down to the city limits of Seattle, for example. That would give you the density of a neutron star. I'm just burning, doing the neutron dance. <laughs> well, you would burn if you did the neutron dance. The the atoms have gotten so close together, compressed by that gravity, that the neutrons are in effect touching mm. as far as subatomic particles can touch. And if you were to get slammed into the neutron star, your atoms would immediately come apart. So now if we were here on Earth and our sun was compacted into a neutron star, it how would that change life here? Uh, it wouldn't matter. The uh, the mass is the same, so all of the gravitational forces are the same. Like, the Earth's orbit wouldn't change. But would it emit more energy? It would no longer emit the uh, the visible light we all love. Oh, as a or neutron Earth, star? Or at, least not, or at least not so much. Would Earth become an ice planet? An ice planet Hoff? Yeah. It would become, it would become, even Hoff appears to have a sun. <laughs> they have daylight. And then night when you have to crawl into your tauntaun. Oh, you're saying a neutron star would not emit light? A neutron star would emit stuff, but... Uh, Some I th- kind of heat. But I think a lot of that has been blown off in the supernova. And it's like, neutron stars are weird. Like, because of their great density, basically... Uh, I don't know, what's the best way to express this? Like a sugar cube. If you had, Let's say you had a sugar cube-sized block of neutron star right now. It would weigh the same as Mount Everest. Hmm. So you, you probably couldn't... I don't have a sense of how much Mount Everest weighs, but... More, you don't more want than a sugar cube. 900 pyramids of Giza or something. Oh. You don't want to drop it into your Oh, that, I know. Coffee. That, that ways. That we can all picture, <laughs> of course. That, that famous thing we've all tried to bench. So it's hyper dense, but you know, I get confused by gravity and light. And when, because I don't know whether light is a particle or a wave. Who does know anymore in so, these uncertain times? So I'm not sure when, at the point at which a star becomes so dense that it no longer lets light escape, but it isn't yet a black hole. It's, so a black hole literally would let nothing escape. Right. Um, a, a neutron star is dense enough that it can bend light around it. If you were standing next to a neutron star and I was on the other side doing social distancing and I waved to you, you could see me because the light would get bent around the surface of the thing. But uh, I wouldn't be able to see the neutron star. Yeah, I guess not, if the light's being bent around. In fact, this room could have a neutron star in it right now, and we would have no idea. How do we know it doesn't? It doesn't. It could be the size of a sugar cube. Weird. Well, the floor would collapse, probably. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, so it's a, it's a billion times Earth gravity. It's got crazily intensified magnetic fields. Um the stuff's the matter has been packed in so thin that if you could tap it, 
it would it's got like a smooth solid surface it would feel like steel but 10 billion times harder and stronger hmm. than steel steel already feels pretty hard and strong i don't know if i could tell that it was 10,000 times harder and smoother. And like a figure skater pulling in his or her or their arms and spinning faster, the fact that all the mass has been pulled in means this thing spins faster. super fast. Oh. Yeah. Like a neutron star is spinning at like 43,000 times a second. Whoa. At a, at spinning at that speed, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was spinning. It would look like it was just... What if you drew a dot on one point? You still, you still think you can tell? It would just look like a line. It would look like a line at that, right? Yeah. What if you use this the the burst mode on your camera or the slow the slow motion? Uh, still forty two thousand times a second. The burst mode wouldn't be able to pick it up. You're probably right about that. How would you draw a dot on it in the first place? The fa- <laughs> that's tough. There it is. It's tough. Like whatever you tried to use would just get sucked into the neutron star, right. and suddenly your Crayola crayon is now. A Crayola blip. Well, you wouldn't even be able to see the neutron star to try and draw, draw a dot on it because you'd because light would be bending around it. Yeah, but if there's you, a lot here for me to unpack, they behave. Su- they're super weird matter. Like it's hard to imagine how they would behave, and uh, a lot of the stuff about them are still mysterious to us. Do we know any neutron stars? Do, can we point to one in the sky? We can, although they don't have cool names that you would know of. That you know they don't emit enough. Like, as I'm saying, they emit radiation much less reliably and brightly than the stars that twinkle on us today. The messed up magnetic field means that some become magnetars, mm-hmm. where they emit magnetic pulses. We don't understand the mechanism here. But Does we'll... magnetar fight Godzilla? <laughs> oh, yeah. Magnetar is going to... No, Godzilla will save us all against magnetar. Magnetars have such a strong magnetic pulse that they would uh, erase your... Wipe your credit cards even if you were 100,000 miles away. Hmm. Or if your wallet were. So don't leave your wallet there. Hmm. Um, the... We don't really understand why they emit. Some of them emit other wavelengths of light from radio waves all the way up the spectrum to gamma waves. And we don't understand why. It has something to do with the strong magnetic field, which then can produce weird electronic, uh, sorry, weird electrical fields. And it's very hard to model, but something about it means that they flash regular pulses of Radio waves, gamma radiation, and other are these pulsars, and that's that's the star, the kind of star that we call pulsars. John, do you know how many membership levels there are for folks who would like to support Omnibus financially on Patreon? Uh, um, between six and ten. Uh, close. There are five. Hmm. All right. Do, do you want to let's run down the perks? Because oh, oh yeah, yeah yeah because because many people. Uh, Donate to the show and enjoy some of these benefits. I'm curious about this. What are the perks? What are, do we start at the bottom and go up or the top and go down? They're cumulative. Oh, yeah, yeah. Start at the bottom. It's like 12 days of Christmas. Not the bottom, but, you know. At the lobster person level of donation, you get probably one of the most meaningful mediast benefits, which is an additional episode of The Omnibus every month. A great episode, by the way. One where we, um, where we open viewer mail and are directed to either mistakes we've made or we are praised to the high heavens for our quality program. We call it the addenda, and uh, it's a, a series of sequels mm. to past shows. So if you um, if you don't listen to the addenda, it's like you have just um, you've just watched Grease, but you're going to miss out on Grease Two, which right. is probably an even better movie. I don't know. It's like you watched The Godfather Two, except rearranged uh, into that ABC. <laughs> The television movie version of it where <laughs> it's chronological. chronological. Yes, it's exactly like that. Then if you double your donation, then you get... What, now what are those people called? They're the, not lobster persons. No, they're sentient aspen trees. Oh, not people at all. They get the bonus episode, but they also get the photo feed of images on the Patreon site. Which, which you're has, always wandering around here taking pictures. What, it, what are you doing? If people send us things, uh, the show notes you and I use. Um, this Geiger counter here. Pictures of us. Uh, just any kind of visual record of omnibus-related stuff. That seems like a cool thing. And what is that level? The uh, the the sentient Aspen level. Financially, what is it? Yeah, they those people uh, do, uh donate ten dollars a month. Ten dollars a month. Isn't that nice? That that is. That's wonderful. But that's... but they're getting you know you're getting ten podcasts a month. You're paying a dollar per show. A dollar a show. 
I mean, if you think about how much it co- used to cost to go to the movies, back when one time, one time a month, it would it cost you at least that. Podcasts are a pretty good uh, bang for your buck when it comes to minutes of entertainment per cent. Right. Um, if you double your donation to the Robot Alien Explorer tier, you get the video feed, you get the bonus episode, but you also get a copy of a set of omnibus show notes um, personalized to you, signed you're by about us. This, like this copy right here in front of me, this one that yes. I just wrote with my own hand. You just recorded that. You and I will sign that, and we're going to send it to Sam or Rita or Meredith or somebody who listens to Omnibus. This would be 100% unintelligible. What makes it great is that it's written on uh, letters that we've received from other listeners. So that's pretty great. I've had to start being careful as to what I use for the back of my... Oh, wow. Like the show we just recorded. It was recorded on the back of a transposed version of the Christmas Carol, Ilene la Divine Enfant, that Dylan... Um, had to transpose to play on the trumpet last I just, Christmas. I, I wrote uh, today's episode on the back of a letter that uh, where the person that wrote me the letter or wrote us the letter in uh, in his signature says that he is a member of the sentient Aspen tree colony level of Patreon support. Wow, we are reseeding the earth. It's just like well, we, we should make crazy. sure he doesn't have his like credit card number on there. Or Recapitulating. Well, but, it yeah, does I'm always making sure I'm not using a bank statement now for writing. It has his email and his phone number. I mean, we could call him right now, actually, this person. At other ludicrously higher levels of donation, uh, at the next level for uh, washing bears, you get all those other benefits. The addenda episode, the photo feed, the show notes, but you also get to choose an omnibus topic. Yes, the washing bears. And we will... We've uh, been doing a lot of fan-chosen topics. Yeah, we don't screw around. We move those right to the top of the queue. Yep, that's cool. And at an even more ridiculously high level of donation, we have the Omniversal Hypercrawl, who get all of the aforementioned benefits, the addendum episode, the photo feed, the autograph show notes, the show topic of their choice, the tote bag, the all of the above, but they also get... Challenge coin. The challenge coin. But they also get a, uh, a live uh, video chat with you and me. Now, we've yet to do one of these, but this is coming up this week, right? We're yeah, going to do our first video chat. We have one on the calendar with somebody who actually uh, was an Omniversal... Hypercoral for the all all uh, all winter. Not not uh, not our only omniversal hypercoral, but the only one that has so far opted uh, for the video chat feature. I think the first one who's who's who was in for a sufficient length of time, right? That we were like, oh, we need to do this chat. How with exciting! You. Well, I can't wait. I hope that this person is not. Um, I hope that this omniversal hypercoral is not a super weird hypercoral because you know they can be weird. Uh, I'm sure it'll be amazingly awkward. Yeah. No. I mean, you and I are both like a little weird to start with. So introduce a third element. I don't enjoy teleconferencing, so I'm going to, but I'm going to put on a brave face. I I was supposed to watch a movie the other day and I told a friend and the friend was like, why don't you zoom call me and we can watch it together. I was like, I would rather die. Then watch a movie with you over Zoom. Are these your friendly fire co-podcasters wanting no, to do this? No, no, no. Those guys, those, those guys would never want to do that. They're as awkward as anybody. If, you, uh, if any of these benefits sound, seem to be of interest to you and you enjoy Omnibus but have not yet become a Patreon supporter, why not treat yourself? Feel free to do so. It's not that uh, – the, the barrier to entry is pretty low. You can, you can support Omnibus and um, – Adi- at, at whatever level it is that that you're comfortable doing, the addenda episode comes at five dollars a month, roughly fifty cents a podcast. But presuming that you've listened to this show for a while, or that you listen to it frequently, um, or maybe you just started listening a week ago, but you've been binge consuming it and have listened to forty episodes in the in that time, you're mo- probably going mad in quarantine uh, at this point. Think about uh, think about making a little contribution to the production of it because it. Uh, it helps us quite a bit. Thank you. Pulsar is a word you would not have heard before the late 1960s. Really? When they were discovered uh, by an astronomer named Jocelyn Bell Burnell, then, then now Dame Susan Jocelyn Bell Burnell, then just Jocelyn Bell. She was, uh, f- she was raised in Northern Ireland her father was an architect, and he had designed one of the largest planetaria in Northern Ireland. I don't know how many there are. So she's a legacy astronomer. Well, 
her dad was an amateur astronomer who loved had astronomy books all over the house. But just the fact that he designed this planetarium doesn't mean he's an astronomer. I see. But it did mean she was hanging out at the planetarium a lot. Right. And, with, uh, with astronomers. Right. And talking to astronomers and scientists. And apparently that's one thing that really sparked her interest. Um, but she would go to her... She would go back to her school and tell them she loved science, and they would be like, no, unfortunately, it's the 1950s and you're a little girl. Oh, you can't love science. We have cooking and needlework for you. Right. And this and made the late, her- That was kind of a bad attitude for the late 50s. People were, people were. I mean, we'd already had Mamie Eisenhower by yeah, then. Yeah, this is Northern Ireland. Yeah, oh, the, Think, oh, right, think right, what right, the right. Irish are doing to their schoolgirls. Sure. A- awful, awful things. Even still. Probably. Uh, and so her parents had to send her off to, uh, they were Quakers. And they sent her off to a, a Quaker private school where she could actually get the education they thought she deserved. Because she was a she was a bright kid. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward to the late sixties, she gets a degree at the University of Glasgow, where she's maybe you know one of a handful of women in the program, and starts to see the way all male spaces treat uh, the few women who dare cross their boundaries. And it's not great. By the time she gets to Cambridge in the late 60s to try to get a doctorate, uh, she is one of only two women in her whole program. And in 1967, her advisor, a Dr. Anthony Hewish, has her working on his own radio telescope that he has built in a field. He's taken four acres of windswept, rainy field near Cambridge University and he's laid about a hundred miles. Well, I say he, he his grad students, like his, <laughs> like uh, uh, Jocelyn Bell among them, is laying a hundred miles of cable and copper wire to turn this whole field into a radio telescope to receive waves from space. This one hundred percent comports with my experience of rural England. That no matter where you are, are traipsing, there's some sort of wet tweedy professor directing his grad <laughs> students to lay a bunch of copper wire with a cane and you're like what are you guys doing and uh, they don't even know and then the uh, police come from the end of monty python and the holy grail yeah so she was in charge of not just helping set up this radio telescope but just reading the miles and miles of chart paper that were produced by this f- the field is now a receptor for the sky and it's receiving noisy uh, peaks and valleys. She's she's looking at a chart. She's not trying to see. Is it detecting whether or not people are watching television in the, the yes. surrounding villages? She's like, this is a peak, which means it's Peaky Blinders. Uh, no, it's determining what the sky is doing. And on November twenty eighth, nineteen sixty seven, she notices that uh, there are these odd blips. Very regularly, these little squiggles are appearing in her chart. It's subtle, but you can see one every 1.3 seconds. Did she immediately think that it was an alien intelligence trying to communicate with her? I mean, that's what I would have assumed, Me right? too. What is the universe trying to tell me here? Beep, 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 beep. She thinks it's a mistake. Oh. She thinks... Scientist. But, uh, but uh, the more, you know, she double checks her, triple checks her work very carefully because she doesn't want to look dumb in front of her advisor. Right. And she becomes convinced that whatever this is, it's real. She takes it to Dr. Hewish and he says, no, 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 no. It's just noise. This is dumb. There's nothing that would repeat every 1.3 seconds from space. That's impossible, lass. <laughs> yeah. He's, I, I cannot be. He's Scottish now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, why not? Well, she went to University of Glasgow. Sure. Right. Maybe she taught him how to do a, a bad Glaswegian <laughs> accent, like you're demonstrating. And choose life, choose a career. But she insists to her advisor that this is this is real, C- continues to show him the data. Oh, you've got your John Deere hat on now. Yeah, yeah, I, feel, I feel better. I'm ready. Man, man of the soil. If, I, if, if we're going to talk about space stuff, I want my tractor hat on. Because you're going to talk about where they probed you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, you, well, then you're going to like this. Hewish and Bell name their uh, mysterious uh, repeating sky squiggle LGM-1, meaning Little Green Man 1. Really? Oh, okay. So they're having fun with it. Yeah. What if it's aliens? Yeah. Uh, she is able to confirm her intuition that this is a real deep, sky, deep, deep space signal by uh, finding a second case, a second uh, sim- similar signal, and then a third one, and then a fourth one. That all are sending pulses 
In this kind of rapid succession? Different intervals, but yes, an extremely reliable pulse. And I'm sure they're not being 100% uh, what's the word facetious when right. they call it little green man one. I mean, one of the reasons why people were and are listening to the sky is in the hopes that you hear some organized signal that might be coming from intelligent life. Because and does this, it's the Fermi paradox, where are they? Right. Does this, um, uh, does the rate of the, of the signal, uh, com- like, d- is it a direct comportment with the speed that the, the body is orbiting? Well, they don't know where it's coming from yet. In 1968, they publish in Nature, Hewish and his and his doctoral candidates, of right. which Jay Bell is the first one listed, publish in Nature magazine their article, Observation of a Rapidly Pulsating Radio Source. And uh, and up until now, nobody had, you know, neutron stars did not exist. You know, nobody had proven, it was hypothetical that after a supernova, you'd get a dense core. Sometimes it would be dense enough to be a black hole, sometimes it wouldn't. Um, but that was all just math and guesswork. Um, this was the first time where anybody had had suggested uh, real-world evidence for one of these super-dense stars. And the, the headlines pick up on, you know, when the popular press picks up on this idea of pulsating radio sources, uh, they abbreviate that to pulsar. So you would think it would be pulse plus star. Sure, that's what I always thought it was. But it appears to be pulsate plus radio. Radio only gets to, to, to add an R. Hmm. It's a little weak. I feel like it's a little weak. It should be pulsarad? It should be pulsing star. It should be pulsar. It should just mean pulsing star, not pulsing radio. And you're leaving out the T to get more parity between pulse and and star. If it was if it was pulse star, or no, if it was pulse star, both words would be fully present. If it was pulse star, then it would be measuring a different thing. Pulse star? Because pulse star. Oh, not, pu- not pulse star, pulse star. Pole star. The hard U. Right. But, that, but that sounds like a synthetic fabric. Like pole, the... Pole star is a, um, is like a, like a rock, a uh, rock concert promoter's trade magazine. And it's pole star? Like pole pol- star. Like Polaris? No, like the, like the pole tax. Like, oh, I see. That, isn't that pronounced the same? Yeah, it but is. It's, but it's spelled differently. <laughs> I see. So, uh, so Jocelyn Bell becomes a bit of a... Celebrity, and uh, because she's the, the the woman co-author on this paper, she's a novelty. And unfortunately, she if she was not already aware what it was like to be a female astronomer in 1967, she now knows what it's like to be a female media figure. Um, people want to photograph her, but they want her to unbutton her oh, yeah. blouse a bit. Did they push her to the front of all the group photos and <laughs> until everybody in the background was out of focus? They're literally asking her measurements. Oh, yeah. She discovers neutron stars, and the first thing people want to know is cup size. Yes, of course. Uh, when really they should be wanting to know what was her cup size? orbital velocity. <laughs> yeah, weirdly, the article that <laughs> that's the, all we care about. The either. article complaining about this does not actually <laughs> tell me the answer. Um, uh, well, and you know, she's a very she looks exactly like my mother did in 1969. She looks like a science person. She's got the far side glasses she does. with the frames that go up at the end. She does. She, she has, she's cute, but in kind of a tweedy, uh, authoritative way. She has a lot of hair pulled back into a sort of uncombed bun. A, she's a, a button-up sweater. My mom, exactly, 100%. And as a result, I'm in love with her. Um, this is a super Im- important uh, discovery because... It lets us study for the first time how the physics of neutron stars might work. Interestingly, the uh, particles inside a neutron star don't act the way any other matter does. The the high gravity means they act like what we now call nuclear pasta. Huh. Because Why sh- do we call it that? Because the shape can vary, much as the pasta aisle of your supermarket will have different shapes. Like some neutron stars, the particles will glob up. The matter will glob up, and those are called gnocchi neutron stars. I was about to say. Sometimes they will kind of coil like helices, and those will be called, I guess, fus- Spir- yeah, yeah, fus- fusilli uh-huh. uh, neutron stars. Sometimes they'll be in flat sheets, and those are your stellar lasagne. Uh, so we literally use pasta as the metaphor now. Um, the regularity, the fact that the, uh, the pulse is, I mean, this very first LGM-1, which now has a longer acronymic name. Uh, not exactly a little green man one? No, we now understand... Probably not a little green man one? No, we now understand the phenomenon which is happening here, which is that as the star rotates, um, beams are coming out of both ends of it like a lighthouse, but right. the beams do not always cross us. So if you imagine a lighthouse oh. light passing ashore, 
if the lighthouse if the lighthouse is also rotating crazy fast and millions of miles away exactly uh so you know we're seeing the pulse at 1.3 miles a second but that's just as it whirls by us and what that means is there's plenty of pulsars out there that are just not happening to whirl right through our through the plane on which earth is located so we don't see it but even so we've now found um hundreds more pulsars and pulsar candidates and the regularity of them they are metronomes like the first pulsar they discovered is still beating with that exact same beat to the 100 millionth of a second now did have i read or am i making this up that pulsars are used as timekeepers yes you can do lots of things with them they are moving relative to us as they blink which means you can use them to measure cosmic distances oh wow very accurately um, you can definitely see, because they blink so reliably, you can definitely tell if anything around is disturbing them, gravitationally or otherwise. For example, the first exoplanet ever detected from Earth. It was detected in relation yes, to, a, the, to a pulsar? Yes, basically the, it was passing through the shadow, oh. the beam, the lighthouse beam of a pulsar. How perfect. Um, the first uh, material evidence we had of black holes, beyond just theory, came from studying pulsars. Um, we've used them to test Einsteinian physics, general relativity, and uh, in 2016, you may recall the, uh, what was it called, LIDO? Was that the name of the, um, LIGO? Yeah, the LIGO, LIGO Observatory. There's one in Louisiana and then one here in Hanford, Washington, that found the first evidence of gravitational waves, which Einstein had predicted as a consequence of general relativity back in 1917, no, 1916. And on the 100th anniversary, we were able, using pulsars, to actually see these ripples in space-time for the first time. And, of course, Einstein was had been discredited many years ago, and he's dead, but now we finally know that he was right all along about yeah, all that well, stuff. Yeah, well, I hope they say that about me. It's, tr- it's, it's true that when you think about it, looking out into space and trying to— um, there's nothing that there's nothing that would aid you in investigating relativity more than if you had little clocks— where you know the exact distance and you can measure the time to the hundred millionth of a second. And they're like widely spread across the whole universe. So you this could... is the evidence of the existence of God. Wow. Or perhaps Dr. Manhattan. Well that, done, that he, Dr. Manhattan that God. He, that he has laced the universe with these perfect little watches that we can see floating. In fact, that's what Carl Sagan used them for. We've talked about the Voyager Golden Record. Um, the Voyager Golden Record controversially contains directions to Earth. Oh, right. Don't do that. Which Stephen, oh, too late. Which Stephen Hawking has warned against because right. he's afraid of the uh, the LGM invasion. Right. Not anymore. He's, he's passed on. But while he was alive, he was constantly, his teeth were just chattering because he was so worried about the invasion from aliens. When Stephen Hawking is worried about a thing, I worry about it too. Mm, so you're worried about like sidewalk curbs? I'm worried. I'm oof. No? Oof. I thought you were going to say, so you're worried about about worms eating you from the inside? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, So on the golden record, the directions to Earth are given in terms of Earth's relative, or the sun's relative position to 14 conveniently located neighborhood pulsars. Right, except pulsars that are as viewed from Earth. Right, that's the tricky part. So if you were out, if you were 100 uh, light years from here, those pulsars aren't, they're going to be flashing at you in a whole different way. We have to, we have to assume that whatever conscious, you know, whatever alien race has the breadth to, to capture V'ger uh, also can understand, uh, also has a great geographical database of pulsars and even ones that are not, you know, not, not necessarily visible from their home world. But you would need to have been here. So if it's a map to here... That requires that you have been here. No, no, no. They can calculate with math which pulsars we could see. But they would have to know where we were. Not necessarily, because... But if they're looking at a sky that has a hundred more pulsars than we do because of just where they're situated, and some of our pulsars aren't visible to them because pulsars are directional... That's true. They're going to be looking at a bunch of pulsars and... How are they going to be able to tell which ones we can see? We're going to have to assume they've seen some of ours with their with their multitude of probes. Because they don't have to be near us to see our, our, our pulsars. They right. just have to be somewhere between us and the pulsar. But the, but the rate at which a pulsar, uh, the, the rate at which we detect it is conditional on where we're located relative to how it's rotating. 
the mm, same pulsar true. could be flashing to them at a different at a rate. different rate because it, there, there must be some way to to take think, into to I take think, into account. You think Carl Sagan? I, I, screwed Carl up. Sagan and I are have are going to go round and round when we're both sitting at St. Peter's foot or wherever you sit. Yeah. Where do you sit? Do you sit at his foot? You sit at his foot. It's not Peter St. Peter though. It's somebody else. Nope. It's St. Peter. Oh, okay. Uh, all the good go to St. Peter and sit at <laughs> his Peter's foot. foot, and all the evil go to Satan's hoof. Right. So I'll sit next to Sagan for a little bit. I'm sure a lot of people want to talk to him. No, he'll be in hell. He's a secular humanist. Yeah, that's so. right. True. In 1970, so so this is a huge game-changing thing for science. This discovery that there are these impossibly regular little little uh, blips out in space, like that Pink Floyd album that would blink for a while on the uh-huh. at, at Tower Records uh-huh. until the battery died. <laughs> oh, it was called Pulse. It was called Pulse, I think. Um, but in 19, and you can see why, given all this amazing stuff about the universe, you can see the appeal of prog rock. Honestly, for sure, like the fact that. Uh, what, that there are these crazy rotating lighthouses in space sending waves across the universe to us? It makes me want to take an extremely long guitar solo in 11, 17 times. It makes me want to, to hear some amazing rush drum uh, break. In 1974, given the, enor- the enormousness of this discovery, uh, Anthony Hewish wins the Nobel Prize. Hmm. He shares it with one of his other uh, colleagues, mm-hmm. who is a faculty member at... Cambridge with him, who had also done work on pulsars. Uh, Jocelyn Bell, now Jocelyn Bell Burnell, is not a recipient, despite being the one who helped lay the cable and the copper wire, and the one who first saw the pulses on the chart, and insisted when Hewish thought they were just noise that there was something there. So she discovered them. And yet the Nobel Prize goes to her boss, and her male boss. Was his... What was his initial uh, experiment of laying all this copper wire out in the field? What was it seeking? Was it just like let's let's tune the radio to the sky and see what we get, or was he looking for something? I de- he definitely was not looking for this. This was an unsuspected byproduct of whatever kinds of cosmic. Ra- he probably wanted to turn into a supervillain. That's that's what. So I So the assumed. discovery really was the 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 thing that was prize worthy and. And the story is that even though once Jocelyn Bell saw it, um, or she saw it and was dismissed, she had to make a case for it. She did. So it was not just that it was seen by she, this. She was not just the one who happened to be the eyeballs on the chart at the right shift. This while they were all and, looking for it. Yeah, this is some Andromeda strain thing. Uh-huh. Like so she, she did real science here. It was her discovery. It was her discovery, and yet she's left off the Nobel Prize citation and hmm. off the check, the, hmm. the giant check that Ed McMahon and the King of Sweden bring you. On behalf of all Earthlings, I say harumph. And when she, you know, and somebody races to her office and says, "Did you hear? Did you hear? Hewis just won the Nobel Prize for your discovery because she's now a full faculty member somewhere." And everyone in her community knows the truth. Well, they're hoping that she'll be pissed, and in fact, she is quite uh, philosophical about it. I see. She says. Look, that's just how it works. Right. Uh, the the full professor gets the credit. the The doctoral candidate staff is assumed to be appendages of of his or her, but let's be honest, not usually his genius. There are an awful lot of presentlings who listen to this show who are in this category of either full professor or doctoral candidate appendage or appendage, and so I'm sure we're going to get a lot of confirmation of this. I kind of wonder how the culture has changed. Um, because even though uh, Dr. Bell has gone on the record numerous times, now Dr. Sorry, Dr. Bell Burnell now, has gone on the record numerous times as saying, uh, I have nothing against the Nobel Prize Committee. I don't feel I got shafted. Science is collaborative. And I was, had the, you know, I was, I was the, the PhD candidate at the time. Right. Uh, I was the degree seeker and the degree seeker does not share in the the uh, the the glory of the discovery. Um, but if is you, she if, being noble, or is she no pun intended? Or she, she or, can't be Nobel, or is she accurately describing the truth that w- and and it would be equally true in a gender blind situation? I think there. I mean, certainly her three other male co-authors on the paper did not get mentioned as well. But I think the Nobel Prize does have a woman problem, and I think. She knows it. If you look at, you know, no, until 2018, 
No woman had won a Nobel Prize for physics. Only two had ever done it, and nobody had done it in over 50 years. Uh-huh. Um, there's a 50 Which year, seems unlikely. There's a 50-year gap where no <laughs> woman did good physics. That just seems unlikely. Well, it seems unlikely when you look at specific cases of who did not win. Um, the famous case is Rosalind Franklin, who did a lot of the work for Watson and Crick. We, again, it's just like the Civil War. We can't remember who the good one was. Right, Watson and Crick, both of whom ended up selling their Nobel Prizes to, On eBay. to fund the Confederate Air Force. <laughs> Well, that's what you got to do. The Confederates don't have hot air balloons yet. Uh, Rosalind Franklin had done a lot of the legwork and a lot of the actual science that led to the helical structure and was always left out of headlines. In this case, her getting left off the Nobel Prize medal uh, it was not an oversight. She had passed away five years before, oh. and Nobel Prizes are famously never given posthumously. Oh, um, That's why the year Gandhi died, there was no Peace Prize. It's a way of saying, we would like to give it to Gandhi if only he hadn't made the mistake of being shot. Ah, I see. Um, But there are other examples. Esther Lederberg, uh, with her husband, uh, discovered the Lambda bacteriophage, important work on how viruses infect bacteria. Interestingly, her husband won a Nobel Prize. She did not. Um, Manhattan Project scientist Chen Shung Wu helped uh, disprove the law of parity, a very important finding in quantum mechanics. Her two male co-authors shared the Nobel Prize. She did not. Lisa Meitner uh, did all the experiments that led to nuclear fission. Uh, And yet Otto Hahn alone won the Nobel Prize for, quote, discovering nuclear fission. Was she working, were they working together or were they working independently? Was it going to be a shared prize? They worked together. And often the Nobel Prize is not given to collaborators. It's given to people working continents apart and maybe even decades apart who, who collaboratively did the most important work. And so they get glommed together. That's right. not uncommon. It doesn't have to be. Do you know how in movies when they're written by credit, if it says, how which, which way did this go? If the two writers are joined by an ampersand, they collaborated on a draft. And if they're joined by the word and, they, work they, separately. they wrote two separate drafts that then got synthesized by someone. Um, it's kind of the same way where Nobel Prizes can be given to ampersand or and collaborators. Now, when we think of the Scandinavians, when we think of the... the uh the fuzzy and democratic socialist Scandinavians that run the Nobel Committee. The friendly, uh, stylish, uh, long-limbed, blonde pine-decorating Scandinavians. When we think of them culturally, we think of them as being egalitarian, as being politically progressive. At what point have they had to confront the fact that, um, that you can still be a... Uh, died in the wool patriarch, even if you are a liberal democratic socialist uh, hippie. Well, this is a phenomenon that, I mean, it's a punchline today, this idea that a man will say something or a woman will say something in a meeting and nobody will hear. And then 10 minutes later, a guy will say the same idea. And that's when the CIO is like, by Joe, Glenn. It's a punchline, but it's also it. demonstrably true. It's demon- <laughs> it can be shown. There are clinical studies showing this. And it, the, the funny thing is the discovery of this actually dates back to 1870. It's named the Matilda Effect after uh, Matilda Gage, an, ab- an activist, abolitionist, and, and suffragette. Uh-huh. Uh, we're merely soldiers. We're merely soldiers in petticoats. <laughs> suffragette! She... Uh... <laughs> Uh, it's called the Matilda effect after her. She described it like 150, almost 150 years ago. It's it's named after her, but she's the one that described it. Well, it was only named after her when it became, uh, when people did academic work on it in the 21st century. Uh. But we now call it the Matilda effect because we found her describing this effect, uh, um, what, 150 years ago? And she's an, she's a suffragette activist, so it's not like she's standing up in a boardroom going, what if we put more corn in cornflakes? She's actually describing the experience of being a women's rights activist, and no one would listen to her until a man said it. And I love that it's the <laughs> Matilda effect, because that's also the name of the Rolled Doll book about a little girl who nobody listens to because she's a little girl, right. you know? Her... Uh, her her awful father is always like, shut up, you're a girl. What do you know? Um, I guess there is an analogous, more gender blind one called the Matthew effect where people- Why is it more general blind? It's got a boy's name? <laughs> yes, it's like it's like hurricanes. <laughs> one year there's the Matilda effect and one year there's the Matthew effect. No, this one is not gender related. It's related to um, fame or status oh. where the same idea out of a marginalized person will be ignored 
I'm not sure why it has to be. Oh, it's I see. It's it's called the Matthew effect because of the parable of the talents oh, right. in the book of Matthew. It's like it's when biblical. I put out a hilarious tweet and it gets 100 faves, and then you put out a totally <laughs> lame tweet and it gets 1,000 faves. No, it would only be that like, if, I, if I stole your joke and, and you got like the same. And you walk in here all, bark, 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 bark. That's the Ken effect. Yeah, the when Ken I effect do, is right. When I do a mediocre tweet that gets... Uh, oh, oh, one more example, just so people don't say I'm leaving her out. Nettie Stevens actually is the pers- is the scientist to whom we owe the uh, sex-linked, the, the understanding of the XY chromosome system. And yet, Thomas Hunt Morgan won the Nobel alone. Has the Nobel Committee recognized these oversights and made any attempt to correct them over time? I mean, there's no posthum, there's no retroactive Nobels. Right. Um, I feel like, actually, uh, I mean, I don't know much about the science involved in awarding the 2005 physics Nobel Prize to Donna Strickland. Um, But I wonder if she is the kind of scientist who could easily have been ignored uh, 50 years ago. Um, If you want want, um, justice for Dr. Bell Burnell, uh, just last year in September, just six months ago, she was awarded the Breakthrough Prize which is $3 million for her work in discovering Pulsar. That's a lot more than the Nobel Prize. Yeah, but it's like a nouveau riche thing where it's called the Breakthrough Prize, and it sounds like it's sponsored by Breakthrough.com. Oh, right. It sounds like an energy drink. It actually, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You've won the Monster.com Science (laughs) Prize. No, it's actually funded by Yuri Milner, who's kind of the Russian Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Oh, right, right, right. Uh, It's also funded by Mark Zuckerberg himself and Sergey Brin and a bunch of Silicon Valley guys, but it was... was, uh, it's kind of a Russian tech billionaire e- ego Nobel thing. But in, in a clearly an attempt to kind of uh, realign the scales and, and undo a past injustice from, from Nobel Prize history, they made Dr. Bell Burnell one of their first recipients. They do three categories every year. And when she was interviewed, um, you know, she was very candid about the challenges, even though she says she doesn't have a bone to pick against the Nobel Committee. She she was very candid about the challenges she faced about uh, as a woman scientist for much of her career. Just you know the Matilda effect of not being listened to, um, being marginalized in the media, um, not having you know with motherhood and family being important to her, and yet not having childcare options. Um, you know she really she clearly is aware that she did not have the same career or the same easy career that a a male radio astronomer might have had. She did become the president of the Royal Astronomical Society. It's pretty good. So she's she has excelled beyond, well beyond what your typical astronomer what, what would What Anthony Hewish did. <laughs> yeah, right. What's up with the Royal Astronomical Society having a woman president before the United States? Come on, man. Seems, seems like that is not uncommon. She's also been very candid about how some of the, uh, some of the advantages she had as a woman, which is kind of interesting. By the way, she has said, you know, when she got this $3 million prize, she was just gobsmacked. She said, I, she, I'm not an affluent person. I don't care about buying a Porsche or a Ferrari. The whole thing is going to fund scholarships for women in science. Great. So that's where the Breakthrough Prize is going. But she has said that um, she actually owes a lot of the success of her work to being a woman in science. It's kind of an interesting take on the... Um, well, I mean, both things. There's the Ginger Rogers backwards and high heels thing. She thinks that uh, knowing that knowing that she had to work harder, or, or you know, or the thing that the that um, African American kids in America are often told that you know, if you're young and gifted and a minority, you have to be two or three times as good as, as just your average as your, dummy, as your yeah, as the white guy sitting next to you in class. And she said that was absolutely true in her work, specifically with pulsars. That the reason why she was so confident when she showed Hewish those results is that she had gone over it four or five times because she kind of had imposter syndrome. Right. She, she at that age she was like, I when I saw only two women in my department, how could you not feel that I don't deserve to be here? So she was always just paranoid about making mistakes and being caught out. So she had gone over that stuff with a fine-toothed comb. Like, not only because she was worried about that, but because she knew that she had to do her job better than the other male grad students. Right. If that had been me, I would have been like, oh, I think I saw something beeping. I don't know. Somebody get me a beer. (laughs) 
pow, pow, finger guns. That's why. Yeah, that's why. Is that why they kicked you off of the out of that program? Well, that's why I was denied my Nobel Prize. And that concludes Pulsar's discovery of entry 1008.IS4713, certificate number 52246 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, I can only assume that all of you are either Nobel Prize winners or are frustrated scientists that have been denied your credit for your incredible discoveries. Because who else could survive the coming cataclysm if not scientists, sentient Scientists. Can you imagine, Ken, if scientists became sentient? I uh, feel a little. What if they had a I feel a little stoned? What? If, yeah. <laughs> like, what if science scientists were like emotionally what more, if more scientists in touch with became self-aware? What would that portend? They would dress better, right? I don't know. Can you imagine a world in which scientists dress better? Carl Sagan's turtleneck looked pretty good. How would you be able to tell them apart from normals? If you are a scientist and a good dresser, please send us pictures of uh, you in your f- nicest outfit. Email us uh, pictures of yourself at theomnibusproject at gmail.com in your best science outfit. Uh, you can communicate with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings. Uh, if you have an antidote for my current feeling of kind of dissolute uh, confinement. Stonages, stone, stonage. <laughs> so fucking. You're just stoned. just thinking about uh, all those band big stars out there, I just know, like just talking like to us. Beetlejuice, just Beetlejuice. Send, sending us messages every Beetlejuice. second. Makes you think. Uh, please uh, go to our Future Links Facebook page where people will be talking about this episode and so many others. Probably not this part of the episode because they have already stopped listening. And uh, if you'd like to send us a super, super uh, dense star particle, send it media mail or it'll be very expensive. I'd be very, I'd be very careful about it. If you had it, I wouldn't give it away. But if you do have it and you want to send it to us, send it to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. If you are an extraterrestrial being, I have just just given you a map to our PO box, but not to ourselves. Here are the nearest pulsars to our PO box. Somebody went to—I I can't find the letter, so I don't have the name. Somebody went to an estate sale oh, nice. and got us these uh, old-timey ties and these lovely ties. Oh, those are cool. Do you wear wide kind of Barney Miller ties? I with- would wear the blue one if you'll take the plaid one. There's no way I'm wearing the plaid one. Oh, look at that one though. This this kind of golden brown one. Yeah, the wheat colored with the brown and the beige and the brown and the beige. You're not going to wear any of those, are you? I, first of all, I've never seen you in a tie that wasn't one that you got for, uh, as a as Out like of a, a cracker jack box. Well, no, the, you get them that match your shirt and pants, right? Don't you? When you buy a suit, doesn't it come with a tie and a cummerbund? That's when I'm doing green screen work, <laughs> pocket square. It's my Andy Circus. Uh, I actually usually wear narrow. Even as a kid, I didn't like wide ties. Yeah, you're a mod. You're. You, you wear those tiny little ties. But, I do wear fat ties. But you're ties. a rocker. I wish I had the... Thank you, whoever sent us this, because your note is here somewhere, and I can't find it. Reb from Conway, Arkansas, sent us uh, a roll of pictures from his grandfather, who was in the Merchant Marines in World War II oh, and after. Cool. And he doesn't know where these are. He thinks maybe Guam. They were developed in Yokohama, so his, his grandpa was in Japan after the war. This is immediately after the war? I mean, he, there might be pictures of him with my... With my great uncle. Was your great uncle in Guam? Uh, he was in the Merchant Marines. Oh, look at this. Oh, these are wonderful little Oh, yeah, uh, look. This photos. is the Guam Service Center. They had two stores, one at Tamoning and one in Piti, so we don't know where he got these developed. But uh, So did he, a Kodak did he lab marry in Guam. a woman from Guam? It, it, the, there's, the photos are full of Guamanians. Oh, look, there's Quonset huts. Yeah. We'll put some Quonset Hut pictures up on the video feed on Patreon, which I'm sure you were about to talk about, John. I was about to talk about it. That's uh, that's patreon.com slash omnibusproject, where you can help support the show and see all of this great 
addenda material. Some of these are really terribly framed photographs, but here's a great picture of a whole row of Quonset huts. With a nice little yard out front and a white chain has, fence. Has that replaced your uh, tractor power magazine as your new as your new porn? I don't know, but I kind of do want this this picture in particular framed. It's just a picture of a Quonset hut. Well, I mean, but. that's the thing about um, that's the thing about getting pictures developed back then. Yeah, like today you can delete the badly framed stuff the second you take it. Right, you wouldn't know. Uh, here, here's a guy in cool sunglasses sitting in an army jeep. He that's sent us cool the picture. giant negatives as well. Oh, these are medium format photographs. Yes. So, so the uh, the negatives are the same size as the print. So we could make we can make all the copies we want. It's astonishing, you know, to look through these and then realize that all of these people are dead. Maybe not the kids. No, the kids are dead too. Everyone on everyone in this in these pictures are dead. I've just I'm just gonna call it. I'm just gonna call it. <laughs> look at those kids. You can see you can Guan see was, they're dead. Guan was blown up in the H bomb <laughs> testing. All these people are gone. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we are as extinct as the people of Guam. We have no idea how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray that this catastrophe we so fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, if the meteor hits while we're in the middle of our quarantine, then this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to return to you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.